Today, our reading is from Esther 2, all of it. And if you're reading from the Black Pew Bible in front of you, it will be on page 410. <clears throat> After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shemai, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Hegai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hegai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was, how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was a uh, regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. When the term came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the, woman, of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. 
Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Thin and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the queen, or Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. This is the word of the Lord. For those who are wondering what in the world I'm going to say about that, um, you can pray for me uh, now, just sort of in your spirit. Um, So last week we saw sort of the main characters, some of the main characters step onto the stage of this Turvy, should this really be in the Bible drama that we are studying now? And we started by asking the question, does it really matter that Esther was born? And what we discovered is that it mattered, big time. Her run-of-the-mill, seemingly ordinary birth reaped extraordinary fruits. In God's mysterious providence, Esther's birth ensured Jesus' birth. And Jesus' birth ensures our new birth. From Esther, we also learn that there are no chance encounters in your life. No accidents, just God's providence on display in your life. You probably recall that God's name is legit not mentioned one time in the whole book. It's not even hinted at. And so in Esther, God's providence isn't like wearing an obvious uniform. It's normally just in street clothes, and and that's the way it's going to be in our lives as well. That was an intentional design by the author to clearly demonstrate that God remains powerfully present even when he is apparently absent. Powerfully present even when he is apparently absent. That's like the big of the whole book, I think. We haven't unpacked all of this yet, but I want you to just follow me here. There's a whole sort of chain of unbreakable coincidences, an unbreakable chain of coincidences, that if even one of them doesn't happen, God's people would get wiped off the face of the planet. Follow me on screen. If there was no feast, there would be no drunk Ahasuerus, no drunk king, no call to Vashti, no call to Vashti, no refusal by Vashti, no refusal, no angry king, no angry king, no foolish counsel, no foolish counsel, no Vashti deposal, no Vashti deposal, no Esther, No Esther, no Jews, no Jews, no Jesus, no Jesus, no hope. We'll unpack that progressively in the coming weeks. But we're going to find God's camouflage, ensuring that the forever king promised to David hundreds of years earlier would surely come. Way back in 2 Samuel 7, God promised. And Esther, God was using Esther to ensure that that promise would come true. A king with more wealth than Ahasuerus could ever dream of, but a king who wouldn't flaunt it. A king was coming who would lay aside his wealth, his crown, his riches, his status, all for the sake of his people, you and me. That was last week's focus, but we want to get into chapter two. 
Look down at chapter 1, verse 3. You'll note that the events in the first chapter took place in the third year of Ahasuerus' reign. But by the time... Can we just agree to, to rename Ahasuerus maybe like Ahash for the rest of the series and, and be done with this? Short. Uh, so by the time a, a new queen is crowned, Ahash will be in his seventh year of rule. You can see that in chapter 2, verse 16. So the events in chapters 1 and 2 take place over the course of four years. Remember, if you remember from last week, in chapter 1, he throws this six-month party, 180 days, to attract the brightest and best men and try to persuade them to go to war with him. He was going to war with Greece. Well, his plan worked, at least initially. Persia assembled the largest army to point, at that point in history and took on Greece. Most historians agree that between Ahash's third and seventh years on the throne, he led Persia into war. And one of the battles in that war was the Battle of Thermopylae. Maybe you've heard of that. But the Persian army got embarrassed by the but wiser Greek army. Thermopylae was, the, was where the Battle of 300 was waged. You've probably heard of the Battle of 300. Ahash was the Persian king on the throne at that time. So he comes back home salty after this loss at war. Back to his winter capital city, Susa. One of the historians of the day, his name was Herodotus, describes the king's life during this season as one of sensual overindulgence. He dallied with the, the wives of his officers and garnered enough hate that would eventually lead to his assassination in his own bed just a little over a decade later. But it's, it's in this sulky, salty mood that Ahash begins to get a little reflective so I want you to just imagine with me for a moment that this next scene, these next couple of scenes, are a movie. So this wide-angle lens that shows Ahash surrounded by a few men that are sort of acting like his advisors. More likely, they're well-paid sunshine pumpers uh, doting on the king and inflating his already bruised and fragile ego. But as you, as you take in this scenery, this beautiful scenery of his of his throne room, even in, in his misery, you're still blown away by the outrageous beauty and splendor that this guy operates in. Over in the corner, you can still see that same side saw in chapter one last week. Even in the shadow of defeat, Ahash is still the world's most powerful and still the world's richest man. But as the, as the camera sort of zooms in on his face, you can see that something's wrong. The room has grown awkwardly silent. Something's on his mind. Something is bothering him. He's taking stock of the last few years, probably trying to figure out where he went wrong, how he'd gotten to this point. He's still agonizing over the senseless, embarrassing defeat at war. Weeks. And then in verse 1, if you look, chapter 2, his mind drifts back to the time just before the war. He remembers Vashti and what had happened, what had happened to her. Uh, and he, he was rejected and embarrassed by her not all that long ago. Rejected and embarrassed uh, by his wife. At this point, he's not angry anymore at her, but he's trying to figure out what to do next. That's when one of his advisors, I think, sees an opening here. 
a chance to lift the spirits of his king and probably to rise up in the ranks of the eyes of his king too by appealing to the king's gigantic ego. You can see this in, uh, in verse 2. So the advisor pipes up, Your majesty, what if you could have your pick of all of the most beautiful young virgin girls in all of Persia? Ahasuerus sits back. I'm listening. Advisor, we'll give them a year to sort of like duke it out. They'll compete to see who can eat the best, exercise the most, smell the best, and perform the best for you. Hegai, Hegai can run the show and make sure that they are in peak shape for their one special night with you, O king. Ahasuerus leans forward. I like where this is headed. And the advisor says, oh, only for you. Why don't we set up a big marketing campaign for you? You can see this in verse 3. So that all the most attractive virgins in the land are brought to you. We could call it Princess of Persia. Ahasuerus responds, no, there's, there's something missing here. So the advisor's like, ha, how about Persian Idol? And Ahasuerus is like, nope, still not quite it. And the advisor gets it. He said, I got it. How about the Persian Bachelor? And, man, I saw that going differently in my head this morning. You win some and you lose some. Some of us lose more than we win. Um, So Ahash is like, now we're talking. Make it happen. And so they begin to make and execute plans to fulfill this this dream of his his advisor. Uh, He wants to make a plan to fill the emptiness of the king's heart of the king's throne and of the queen's throne and ultimately of his bed. And that's the end of that scene. Well, the next shot in our little movie here has the title 40 years ago scrolled across the top of the screen. And the scenes move quickly across uh, these black and white still shots since it's showing things that happened long ago. Probably some shots in, in a family home. If you remember 40 plus years before the time of the story of Esther that we're dealing with, Cyrus, the Persian king, this is Ahasuerus' grandfather, Cyrus afforded the Jews the opportunity to return. Many of them went. Esther and Mordecai's family. Instead, they chose to dig their roots into the Persian soil, to stick it out there, to, to raise their families there, to find employment to adjust to the culture, to do life and purchase a small home, perhaps. The next shot opens up to that same small home 40 years later. Fast forward 40 years. At the top of the screen, you read present day. And so look at verse 5 for the present day. What's the first thing that the author wants us to know about the newest character in his story here? He wants us to recognize his first identity and then the culture in which he lives out his identity. Identity and culture. Look at verse 5. Now there was a Jew, that's his identity, in Susa. That's his culture, Persian Empire culture. There's a Jew whose name was Mordecai. That's his identity and culture. And then verse 7 describes his current calling in his lifetime. Verse 7, he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, for she had neither father nor mother, Mordecai her as his own daughter. So here we've got a small group of God's kids growing up in a culture that didn't give one rip about God. Does this sound even a little bit familiar to the way you live your life? Maybe what life looks like through your eyes. Aren't we too a religious minority living in a culture that is dominated by ideas 
and beliefs that are opposed to ours? I think we are. And I think this is going to be one of the main themes of the book. How does one maintain their faith in a culture that doesn't worship the one true God? How do we maintain our faith in a culture that is like diametrically opposed to all that we are and what we believe? For us, the book of Esther. So let's tag along with these characters today to see if we can find some answers to this question. And note the, note the interesting description of She's the only one that the author ascribes two names to throughout this book. And I think this might be like a little behind-the-scenes peek at the author subtly communicating to us that Esther is a young woman trying to live in two different worlds. On the one hand, you've got her Jewish name, which was Hadassah. See that in verse 7. This Hadassah is a young, beautiful Jewish woman who worships the one true God of heaven and earth. But then you've got Esther. Esther was a Persian name, a beautiful young woman who's trying to make it in a purely material world. Hadassah and Esther, two names, one woman. Two divergent pursuits, same person. Which side of her identity is going to hold sway? Surely she can't sit on this fence forever. Well, verse 7, the author has told us that Esther was beautiful in form and appearance. So we really shouldn't be surprised by what happens next in our story. Someone mentioned somewhere along the way that this young woman lives in that little house. So the king's eunuch, his name was Haggai, had his men escort her all the way back home, verse 8. Escort her from her home uh, to the castle. Uh, And uh, so they escort her away. In one minute, she's a Jewish girl growing up in a Jewish home, and the next she is thrown into the heart of a sexually charged empire where it seems like her only assimilation, capitulation, and seduction. And this, surprisingly, look at verse 9. The young woman pleased him, Haggai, the king's eunuch, and she won his favor, and he quickly provided her with the cosmetics and her food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace. So these women, I mean... They are working so hard for an entire year because their whole future hinged on one night. The rest of their lives would be deeply impacted by these few hours with the king. Depending on what happened during that night, there are at least three things that could happen to the women. You can see it at the beginning of verse 14. You see the first option. The king dislikes them, and he sends them away to be permanent concubines, never to call on them again. And these women aren't allowed to go home. They're not allowed to get married and have children. So at around the age of 18, they are essentially banished to permanent widowhood. That's the first option. The second option is at the end of verse 14. The king does like her and decides to call on her every once in a while when he, when he feels like it. But you can see in verse 14 that you'd have to be memorable enough for him that night to have him remember your name. But the third option If you were the most memorable, the most lucky, as it were, you'd you'd be the one that he'd tag as his next wife, the queen. Well, Esther wins the Persian bachelor. She earns the king's favor. uh, He marries her and takes her as his queen. In verses 17 and 18, you can see that he throws a gigantic party and even provides some tax cuts in celebration. And we shouldn't forget to sort of back away here and consider, take stock as to what 
what's at stake here in this story. Especially if you're unfamiliar with what happens next. We'll get to it in the coming weeks, but there are some pretty powerful people that want to wipe out the entire Jewish population. And this isn't a new problem for the Jews, uh, if, if you're familiar with their history in the Bible. At other points in the scriptures, God's people are in danger, and he responds in some like epic ways. Protecting his own in a fiery furnace, shutting the lion's mouths, spreading the Red Sea waters so that his people could escape Pharaoh and walk through on dry ground. But none of that is happening here. Just a little orphaned Jewish girl who somehow, over the course of a few months, becomes the queen of the greatest empire to that point in history, on the face of the earth. I think it is wild that God uses a compromised Esther to do his work. She is compromised, but somehow still cared for. She is faithless, but somehow still favored. Look how compromising she is. Verse 10. Under Mordecai's direction, she hides her identity as one of God's people. She's fearful and faithless. Look at verse 16. She sleeps with a man that was not her husband. Look at verse 17. She marries a Gentile and not a Jew. I mean, she, according to Old Testament law, has gone way off the radar. It looks like, by all accounts, that she has just walked away from God, embracing the worst parts of Persian culture and then fighting her way to the top of it. I mean, how do we maintain our faith in a culture that doesn't worship the one true God? I'm not sure if Esther is the best person to answer that question for us. At least not yet. And, and yet, the incredible, shocking undercurrent of this book is this. Esther is faithless and fearful, and yet somehow still favored. She is faithless and fearful, but still favored. I say this is a shocking, uh, a shocking thing for God to do because, what, because of what we might expect from the holy book from God, right? We might expect God to say, be fearless, be faithful, and then I'll move. But the God of the Bible in his mercy is not that way. But if you're reading this carefully this morning, you've got to sort of be thinking, yeah, but it, it, it kind of all worked out for Esther, right? I mean, What's wrong if I sleep my way to the top? So we have to ask ourselves, what is the actual takeaway? As much as possible and hope against hope that God's going to be okay with it and somehow use it? No, I think that's to miss the point entirely of this book. The point here is not to entice us with the ends justify the means kinds of sins. The point instead is to enamor us with the greatness of God who is able to weave the really poor performances of his kids into stunning tapestries of grace and salvation, like he uses Esther and Mordecai. He regardless, this is what Karen, Karen Jobes says, she says, regardless of their character, their motives, or their fidelity to God's law, the decision Esther and Mordecai make move events in some inscrutable way to fulfill the covenant promises God made to his people long ago. God is big enough to use big sinners to do his work. That's the point. He uses questionable people, questionable people, all of us, to do his bidding. And that is good news for you and for me. How strong are you feeling today? Strong or weak? God's favor on you 
isn't because of you. His use of you isn't based on you. Last week, I kid you not, last week, after I came down from standing right here, I sat down right there, and I was, I was frustrated with myself because I, feel like, I, I felt like I hadn't communicated in a way that I wanted to about the truths that we talked about last week. And so I, I leaned over to Miriam and I whispered this discouraged confession into her ear. And wouldn't you know it, the sermons I preach to y'all are for me too. And she wasn't afraid to dish it back in that moment, right in my face. Last week I said something like this, God uses us not because of us. God uses us despite us, not because of us. And she whispered back, hey dummy, God's use of you this morning isn't based on you. How I interpret that's how I interpreted it in the moment but I had gotten this twisted last week like just moments after I said it God's going to do something big because I did something great nope first God is free to do whatever he wants and then second anytime he does choose to use us it's because he's big enough to use questionable characters like us not because we're some kind of big in his hands it's, if God's favor was based solely in obedience, Esther would have been out of luck, and so would we. But he dishes out favor daily to those who don't deserve it. God blessed Esther despite Esther. Same for us. God blesses us for his son's sake, based on his righteousness, not on ours. Esther and we, we are fearful and faithless, but because of Jesus, we are favored because God looks on him and pardons me. In these moments in Esther's life in real time, God is looking on Jesus and pardoning her and favoring her. Esther is proof that we cannot write ourselves out of God's story. This is the crazy, encouraging part of the Bible, and maybe eye-opening to you if you're new to the Bible. The message of the Bible is not that God blesses and saves and uses morally upright people. The message is that God gives grace to people that are morally bankrupt. He gives grace to people that don't deserve it and often don't even want it. And some of us who have sold our souls to the world's system. So Esther and we are fearful and faithless. But if we are in Jesus, we are favored. Second this morning, while God's presence is camouflaged in the book of Esther, it is completely absent in the pursuits of Esther. While God's presence is camouflaged in the book of Esther, it is absolutely absent in the pursuits of the woman Esther. And we've talked a lot already about how the author intentionally removes the name of God or any hint or trace of the presence of God in, in the story. And he does this as a literary device. He does it intentionally. For a book, though, that is about God, to include no obvious references to God is a little don't we think? But again, the author is intentionally camouflaging God, camouflaging his presence to show that he is in reality very much present and active, even when it doesn't look like it on the surface for us. And we're supposed to learn something from that for our own lives. But I think when we look at this story from Esther's point of view, God isn't just camouflaged for her. By all accounts, she has straight up turned her back on God. She's fully immersed herself in the culture 
And we don't read of a single time when Esther is leaning into God, praying and fighting for faithfulness. Instead, she and Mordecai spin up a plan to help her advance and then to keep her identity on lockdown. Verse 10. But their plans never feature any kind of dependence on God. We see Esther trying to make progress, and she's making alliances with all the right people. But her alliance is with Haggai and not with Yahweh, her God. God is literally and conspicuously absent from the words of this book. But he is tragically and inconspicuously absent from Esther's life. At least at this stage in her life. As we'll see, God sticks with her and transforms her. But he is absolutely inconspicuous in her life story right here. I wonder this morning how how inconspicuous God's presence is in your life. How many days can you go without a conscious lean into the Lord? A spirit of prayer, a time in the word with your maker, a casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. Esther was in the daily grind of getting to the top, getting the job done, making alliances with key people that could advance her agenda, but she was forsaking the one alliance that was all-powerful. Like Esther, is God pretty much inconspicuous in your day-to-day? This is where I had to take a big gulp this week as I studied, and I'm going to make my second pastoral confession of the morning. Often when I prepare to preach, and even, even this morning as I was sitting down there singing, I am tempted to make alliances with the turn of a phrase or a a funny story or what I think is a funny story apparently um, or a tear-jerking story that's just really going to pull on emotions. That's who I make my alliances with rather than with Jesus. Jesus can and does use all those sorts of things but the power's not in them. It's in Jesus. I I just want you to know that this book is changing my heart too. Hopefully, as it's changing yours, I'm right there with you. It's said that 19th century pastor Charles Spurgeon would ascend the stairs to his pulpit every Sunday, whispering to himself, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. With each stair that he'd climb up. But why shouldn't all of us? Why shouldn't all of us have that posture of heart when we're climbing the steps of our own vocations, whatever they may be? Going to work grinding it out, making another dollar, and leaning hard. I need you, Holy Spirit. I need you, Holy Spirit. Consciously leaning. So when day breaks each morning, who's the first ally you turn to? Twitter? Email? This one's okay. Coffee's okay. Man, Esther was allying her, uh, allying herself with the king's servant when she could have been ally, allying herself with the king of kings. We're not all that different. God help us enjoy his conspicuous presence in our lives. Well, we have, we've kind of beat up on Esther this morning, and we're going to keep going, but maybe some of you are like, yeah, but I mean, what, what could she really do? Turn the king down and risk being beheaded? Run away and risk in that way? 
And I think that's sort of the point. Here's what Ian Duguid says. He says, regardless of whether Esther and Mordecai always choice was or whether they had the best motives, God was working through their, even through their imperfect decisions and actions to fulfill his purposes. Other than Jesus, even the godliest people of the Bible were flawed, often confused, and sometimes outright disobedient. So here's the takeaway, Christian. Get off the sidelines. Jump into the fray. Take a risk. Tell that friend the good news. Serve here in the church. Inconvenience yourself for the good of someone else. Do intentional spiritual good to a friend. Ask that person in your C group how their soul is before you talk about how the weather is. Will you be a little faithless in it? Probably. A little fearful? Yeah. But you can take courage because God used Esther, her feeble efforts, and he will use ours. Third this morning, sells out to her culture's definition of beauty. Esther sells out to her culture's definition of beauty. For Esther to progress up the ladder of this vain Persian world, Hadassah, her Jewish identity, had to die. Or at the very least, had to be buried deep beneath the veneer of beauty and upward mobility. That Persian culture valued what a person had more than who a person was. I wonder if we've been subtly taken captive by this too, even, even in the church. This is, this is so subtle in my life. We haven't suddenly changed our minds about what God views as true beauty. It's that the world around us has become more like Persia, and we've just sort of slowly tagged along behind. So there are people in careers right now that hate their careers, but are chained to them because it brings them status or money that they crave. The empire has gotten to us more than we know. There are eating disorders that are sometimes fueled by the world standard of beauty. This isn't always the case, but sometimes there are eating disorders that are fueled by the world standard of beauty. The culture has infected us more than we know. There are some who spend insane amounts of money on beauty upgrades or wardrobes or status-building toys. The world is shoving us through their beauty treatments so that we'll be fit for them when it's all said and done. But like King Ahash, The world just wants to use us for its pleasure. The world woos you into bed with it. When the world says, be beautiful, work hard, exhaust yourself, make something of yourself, you've got to do work to make yourself attractive before you can have anything to do with me. When the world says that to us, and it says it every day, we have to force ourselves to remember that there is a better spouse. Many times throughout the scriptures, especially in Ephesians 5, the relationship between God and his people is described as a relationship between a husband and a wife. And unlike Ahash, Jesus requires no inherent beauty in you. Jesus requires no inherent beauty in you. Jesus says, come as you are. You don't have to prove anything. You don't have to do great things. You don't have to look or act or be anything more than you are. I'll take you just as you are and make you fit to be my bride. The world is such a horrible substitute. It's a horrible substitute that we whore after instead of resting in 
being known and loved and accepted by God in Jesus. So often is it. How twisted is it that we often prefer Ahasuerus' gospel over Jesus? Believe success, beauty, power, influence. We believe that those are the things that make us valuable. So like Esther, we scratch and we claw at work, on social media, on Amazon. Those are the primary places where many of us fall prey to the world's gospel. At work, on Amazon, on social trying to get to the top, or to at least look like we've gotten to the top, right? Jesus' gospel, in contrast to Ahasuerus' gospel, is not a love story in which a good-looking groom meets and falls in love with a radiant bride. The gospel is a love story in which a radiant and pure groom chooses to love and purify a wretched bride who has repeatedly given herself over to the love of the world. In Persia, Esther was loved because she was beautiful. But Jesus loves us in spite of our flaws in order to make us beautiful. Esther had to give up her life and freedom to become the spouse that the king wanted. But in our story, the gospel story, the king, Jesus, gives up his life and freedom to rescue us. Not because we were lovely, but to make us lovely. Tim Keller said that Jesus became cosmically unsightly so that we might become eternally beautiful. I don't want to ruin a future sermon here for you, John. He's going to be preaching chapter 6, but what I might do is ruin your future sermon here. I hope not. Um, uh, his, ser- his text connects directly with the last couple of verses here, verses 19 to 23. And he'll have more to say on that in a few weeks, unless I say all the things this week. Um, but let me briefly wrap this up by saying that Mordecai's coincidentally timely rescue bore providentially delayed fruit. I know all the points have been mouthfuls this morning. I apologize. While you try to untangle what that even means, um, I'm going to keep moving. Mordecai's coincidentally, coincidentally timely rescue bore providentially delayed fruit. Something I discovered this week, which I never knew, is that there are five years between the event in verses 19 to 23 here and when it finally pays off for Mordecai in chapter 6, five years. I mean, that rolls off the tongue super easy and super quick, but that is a long time to wait. Doing the right thing in our lives will not immediately pay off. But God is not blind. He is not deaf to your work. And I, I church, I mean this. I need you to preach this to me all the time. And you can come up to me and say it just like this. Yo, here's the deal. God's pace is often more plotting than yours, Josh. God's pace is more plotting than yours. So relax. Enjoy the Lord of your life, each moment of your life. One of my favorite authors says it like this. Almost anything in life that truly matters will require you to do small, mostly overlooked things over a long period of time with Jesus. Satan used the exact opposite strategy to tempt Jesus on the front end of his public ministry. Maybe you remember this story from Matthew 4. First was the hurry of immediate gratification. Turn these stones into bread. 
The second temptation for Jesus was to prove himself with a spectacular display. If you're really the son of God, throw yourself off this temple and make the angels catch you. Finally, the third temptation, Jesus baited, Satan baited Jesus with global glory and global power. For Jesus, each of these temptations, immediacy, legitimacy, and glory all have to do with God's sovereign timing in his life. Eventually, eventually Jesus' fast would end. He'd complete his and he'd his identity of, as the Messiah would finally be vindicated and the glory of the earth's kingdoms would belong to him. But not yet. Just like Mordecai, not yet. Just like you probably, not yet. And in the not yet, Jesus patiently trusts the Father's timing. Not once in the Gospels do we find Jesus to be in a hurry. So why are we in a hurry to get ahead and to get higher? Patience grows in us when we remember that we don't need to see how the story ends or when our seeds will flower. The inventor of time is clearly never behind schedule. And in that glorious truth, we find all the rest we need to face anything we're facing while we're waiting on God to come through. When we are demanding of immediate payoff for our, our obedience or faithfulness, we're just trying to wrest God's sovereignty from him. And that's just silly. Mordecai had to wait five years for the payoff of what happens here in verses 19 to 23. Five years to be properly rewarded. But listen, and, and again, John will cover this. If Mordecai had been rewarded any earlier, any earlier, all of God's people would have been wiped off the face of the planet. God's timing was perfect, even if it was inconvenient. Mordecai's coincidentally timely rescue bore providentially delayed fruit. Your obedience is probably going to bear delayed fruit. Trust God while you wait. Two quick concluding observations. First, we are all more like Esther than we like to think. Don't be shocked. I have been shocked, but we should not be shocked that Esther is maybe a little worse than you thought she was. We're all a little worse than we think we are. This is legit the main story of the whole Bible. It's faithless, fearful compromisers and does amazing work through them. Moses, the murderer, David, the adulterer, Esther, the seductress, Paul, the savage, Josh, the lazy, you, the fearful, you, the proud. You see, one sign that you've encountered the living, holy God is that you walk with a limp and not with a strut. Become small so that Jesus can become big in us and God willing through us. We're more like Esther than we think. Second, Jesus is far better than we're prone to think. Jesus responds to compromisers with care and to the faithless. I imagine after those many, many women strolled down the walk of shame after a night with the king, I imagine that many of them left feeling weighed down with shame, feeling futureless, 
feeling dirty and pointless. But Jesus has removed our shame forever. He has rescued our future. And he has made us shameless before the throne. He is the true and better king. Jesus is far better than we are prone to think. Will you pray with me this morning? I pray that you'll help us be patient even as most of your lives are camouflaged and it's hard to see, it's hard to know uh, what you're up to a lot of the time. I pray that uh, we would still trust you and that we would still follow you by your spirit and your word. For the glory of your son we pray this. Amen.